We begin a new sermon series today called The Church Is. We'll be looking at different characteristics of the New Testament church using sections from the book of Ephesians. So, for example, today we'll look at the church as a community. We'll look at the church as worshipers, as witnesses, and more. Now, I don't know how many of you looked at the bulletin at all and looked at the title. If you did, hopefully you caught that there's bad grammar there. The church are a community. Okay, well, that bad grammar was on purpose, as Dan and I talked about it. We wanted to try to catch and give the sense that the church is many, many people. When you say the church is, say it enough, you, you get your grammar down enough, you recognize unconsciously is means a single subject. Are means a plural subject. You didn't think you'd get a grammar lesson in church, did you? And so we say the church are a community because when, as part of the Christian church, you and I can say we are a community because we recognize that the Christian church is made up of millions of people across cultures and across time. And the kind of community that I'm speaking of is one where people love each other, serve each other, they give and receive. On our verses today from Ephesians, it's, it's, this is a letter, we sometimes forget. The book of Ephesians is a letter written to Christians, both Christian Gentiles and Jews in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is speaking particularly and highlighting the fact that the church there is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So remain seated and let's read together Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 22. Let's read together. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now before we look at our verses, which we will do, I want us to take a few minutes and review some Bible basics that help us understand the verses. And in your bulletin, you'll notice that under the scriptures, you've got some notes. And some of those notes are what I'm going to be working from. So, basic number one. As we look at the Bible, 
And using the terms from our sermon title, God is a community. God is one God, but he's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the church, we use the word Trinity to talk about God because tri means three. God is a community. Now think of what that means. God has existed from before time began, from eternity past, which means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have loved each other and delighted in each other from eternity past. God has never been lonely. God is a community. That's one. Number two, I call it the big Bible story. If somebody were to walk up to you on the street and say, hey, can you tell me what the Bible is all about? You could say, I can do it in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the big Bible story. Now, hopefully they'll then say, okay, so what does that mean? And then you can explain it to them. Creation, in part, is talking about that God created man, us, in his image. So you and I and all mankind are created by God for community. Because God is community. That is relationship. He made us to have a relationship with him and with other people. And so God created mankind, not because he was lonely, because he wasn't, but because he wanted to share his community with us. And then God created the universe as a place for us to live. That's creation. You read Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve began in community with God, in relationship with God, and they chose to love God for a time. But then we see in Genesis 3 that the serpent comes and he begins to ask questions and question God, question God's goodness, and to actually disagree with God. And in Genesis 3, you see that Adam and Eve chose to not trust God. They chose that they were not going to believe God, and out of that distrust and out of that disbelief, they decided to rebel against God. And we call that in the church the fall. Fall because it is a fall from perfection to the mess that we know and that everybody else has experienced since that happened with Adam and Eve. Well, what did the fall do? One of the things the fall did was it broke community between Adam and Eve and God, between Adam and Eve. The fall broke community along with everything else. So instead of being part of a life-giving, enjoyable community, Community is distorted. By the way, I was just listening uh, over the last week and a half or so to some recordings of, I think, a very even-handed comparison between secularism and evolution and humanism and Christianity and other religions. So it's across the board, looking at all of these. And what you see when you look at all these pieces all together and understand the pieces and what they mean is that I believe what you come away with is that the Bible explains the world we live in and ourselves and everything else the best, better than any other religion, any other view of the world. And the Bible says there was creation where everything was perfect and good and then there's the fall. And that fall affected many things, everything, including community. And we are just as guilty as Adam and Eve of unbelief and distrust of God. 
today as they were. But what do we see in that, with this brokenness in relation to community? We naturally use other people. Other people naturally use us. There are wars, big and small. One group oppresses another group. Slavery still exists today. It is not gone. It is not just a matter of history. It still exists. That is one group of people oppressing another group of people. But then there's another kind that's even bigger. Economic oppression. Where one group that's in power, or that have more powerful than another, uses that power to either use or to take from or to ignore another group with the result that they have less and less. But it's not just group on group. There's also groups that then reject people. A person is rejected by others and then isolated. Or the other thing that happens is we isolate ourselves. All of those are forms of broken community. But there's another opposite that I want to mention because it is so prevalent, so pervasive today, and that's individualism. And that's the idea that raises the individual above everything else. And it is widespread in our culture, in our Western culture, and we're often blind to it, don't even recognize it. Some, and sometimes we get offended when somebody from another culture points out our individualism. And we're thinking, but of course it's right, that's what I believe. But we're also blind to its effect. And sociologists today, both Christian and non-Christian, have documented the negative effects of individualism on our culture and on our communities. I want to hi highlight four aspects of individualism. First one, and th these are on the screen, but it's also in your notes, in your um, bulletin. Self-will. The idea that I will do what I want to do. And nobody can tell me what I should do. Self-importance. I am more important than anybody else, including you. Now, you see these things to varying degrees in various situations with, uh, with people. Self-reliance. I can do it myself. I don't need help. And then self-protection. Because it's me and everything is about me, I have to make sure that nobody else messes with my stuff. And so I'm going to make sure that I protect my interests from any kind of interference that you might cause or anybody else might cause. Now you look at that list and you can tell, just looking at it, that these four things work against a loving, serving community. A person might give some, but it's only if they think it's in, if they're of this mindset, only if it's in my best interest to help you out will I help you or give, and that kind of thing. And the thing is, as we look at this and recognize this is us, this is our culture, in the middle of all this, we want good community. We want it. We're looking for it. Well, it takes us to part three of this four-part story. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption is not a word that we use today. But back in Jesus' day, if it was used, people automatically understood it generally meant one of two things. Either a person was being bought out of slavery, or they had a debt, and a, a, a relative of theirs is paying the debt for them. When that, that word redeem means either bought out of slavery or a debt is being paid. 
The New Testament church takes that idea and applies it spiritually and says redemption, that Jesus redeems us, means that he buys us out of slavery to sin. He buys us out of the slavery to disbelief of God, distrust of God, rebellion against God. And he pays the debt we owe and he suffers in our place to satisfy justice. But have you thought of this? That's one of the reasons why I started with this idea that God is a community and has been from eternity past. That when Jesus was on the cross, because that's where he took on himself our rebellion and mess and everything else that we've done. And that is where he satisfied God's justice. That when Jesus died on the cross for the first time in eternity, the perfect community between God the Father and God the Son was broken. Because Jesus takes on himself all of the sinfulness and rebellion and mess and, and me first that, that, that generates so much of what we do. And God the Father says, I've agreed with you, son, that you're going to take it and I'm going to punish you. Because God knew and Jesus knew that if you and I receive the punishment we deserve, we would be destroyed. And he wanted to show mercy to us. We just sang the song, the cross is where love and mercy meet. But in that process of love and mercy meeting, the community between God the Father and God the Son was broken. And on the cross, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't think he's actually looking for an answer. I think he already knew the answer. I believe it was an expression of Jesus, of his pain and suffering a kind of pain and suffering that would destroy us, a kind of pain and suffering he himself had never experienced because it was total rejection and punishment from his father and all he'd known from eternity past was God's love and delight. And God the Father and the Son experienced this broken community so that the last part of the big Bible story could come true and that was restoration. Jesus comes to restore, to fix what is broken. We see in our verses that Paul said, you were, you were strangers, you were aliens. I was just reading in my daily Bible reading this week where it says you're strangers and aliens and hostile to God, enemies of God. And Jesus restores that, restores us. And that's of first importance that Jesus restores our relationship with God. Because without this, we have no hope. You know, tonight, we're going to be talking about depression in the Biblical Principles for Living class. And one of the things that comes right hand in hand with depression is no hope. When we don't see a way out of where, you know, the, we see a mess we're in, we see no way out. Well, here we have a hope that says, it doesn't matter what it is. Jesus takes care of it. Whatever it is in your life and mine, Jesus takes care of it. Because of Jesus' work, we're adopted as God's children. We sang about that. And Jesus' restoration includes restoring community. And that began <clears throat> with the New Testament church, early church. But it isn't complete. And if you and I look at not just the church, but the world, we see that restoration is not complete yet. But one day, Jesus' restoration will be complete. And when it is, the earth itself will be restored and everything broken that you and I know and struggle with today 
will be gone. Everything will be as it should be, as it originally was. Well, that's background. Let's take a few minutes and look at our verses. Just two thoughts as we look at them. First, you're going to see that Paul repeats himself. But second, in these verses, we're going to see some of the what and the how of restoration. We're going to see restoration in process going on here. So in verse 13, Paul says, talks about the Gentiles, and they were far off. Not about you, but when I hear the word far off, I, I immediately think distance. Geographical, how far away are you? And certainly most Gentiles were very far from Jerusalem, which was the center, the temple, the center of Jewish worship of God. But Paul's not talking about that. He's talking relationally. He says you're alienated, you're hostile, you're enemies of God, which means you have no community with God. But he also talks about, so he says, and if you read the verses before this, he's talking about Gentiles are far off, Jews are near. And in one sense, the Jews were near, and I put that in quotes to God, because the Jews had God's word, the Old Testament. God had come to the Jewish people and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But Paul also knew very clearly that the Jews had misunderstood the Old Testament. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Paul and his own personal history. He was extremely zealous for God and for the Jewish religion. And he was going 100% against the Christians because he thought they were totally wrong until Jesus interrupted him. And then come to find out, he's the one who's got everything wrong. The Jewish religion had taken God's word and had very slowly and unintentionally, I think, ended up messing it up. And so in that sense, the Jews were also far off from God. And so then Paul says, Jesus brought those far off, both the Jews and the Gentiles, near by his blood. And that word blood is like a code there for him to talk about Jesus' death and his sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, Jesus is our peace. That you and I don't get peace with God any other way. And you and I won't have lasting peace with other people without following God's ways. And then he says, Jesus made the two, the Gentiles and the Jews, one group. How did he do it? Well, he says then what he does. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility. One of the things that a wall does, not only holds up the roof, it separates. And I don't know if Paul was thinking of this, but he could have, because he'd been there many times. The temple in Jerusalem. Anybody could go to the temple in Jerusalem, Jew and Gentile. You could go into the first court, which is called the outer court. But when you went into the outer court, you could see that there was a wall about so high Low enough you could see over it, but high enough to know it's there on purpose. And then you see the sign on the wall that says, No Gentile beyond this point. So when you look in, all you see are Jews inside the wall. Maybe he's thinking of that, but he says that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You see, the Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other. 
And I think maybe in some sense they enjoyed not liking each other. As they looked at each other, they certainly thought that themselves, that they themselves were better than the other group. As they looked at, at themselves and the other group, both saw the differences because they dressed differently. They had different customs. Other things that made them different, but they didn't see, I don't think, what made them similar. That they had both turned away from God. And Paul says, Jesus broke down that wall of hostility. He leveled the playing field. We all stand equally guilty before God. Then he said, Jesus abolished the law of commandment. Now, that might seem contrary, and on the face of it, it actually does seem contrary to where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. So which one is it? He didn't come to abolish the law, or he did? The answer is both. When Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He kept it. In fact, he's the only one who ever perfectly kept the Ten Commandments. But if you remember our sermons from Christmas time, the Advent sermons, each week we were looking at Old Testament feasts and festivals and how they pointed forward along with their regular uh, worship sacrifices and things all pointed to Jesus. And with Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, he fulfilled the ceremonial law. But here's what the ceremonial law had in it as a part. It told them, here's how you do worship. Here's what the temple is to look like, the tabernacle. Here's how you do your worship. But it also had another part that talked about being ceremonially unclean. The law said, there are, here are some things that you could do, and if this happens to you or you do this, you're now ceremonially unclean, which means you cannot go to the temple or the tabernacle until you follow these other instructions that clean you. Now, what was the purpose of that teaching? It wasn't for them to, to think, oh, well, I have followed this list that God gave me, so I am good with God. It was for them to actually see that we're all unclean and that God is the one that cleans us up. See, before God, both Jews and Gentiles are guilty and dirty and defiled. And so if you read the book of Romans, the first three chapters, what you see is this. You see the arguments that Paul lays out and says, here are the Gentiles and you're guilty before God. And here are the Jews and you're guilty before God. And his summary Romans 3.23, all have sinned. We're all guilty. And so Jesus says, we're not making a distinction anymore between Jewish and Gentile. That teaching had a purpose. It was for you to understand that you're all unclean. And Jesus is the ultimate purifier. And then Paul goes on to say, Jesus made peace between the Gentile and Jewish Christians. He did. But again, one of the things that we do as human beings, even as, as Christians, is we can mess up all the good things that God has. And if you read the book of Acts, and if you read in some of the letters that Paul writes, you will see that it took a good while for this to sink in, especially for the Jewish Christians. Because they kind of thought still they had the inside track. Because they were the ones who had been given the Old Testament. 
And now they understand from the Old Testament how Jesus comes. Yet they're still insisting that these Gentiles, non-Jewish people, well, if you really want to be a true 100% Christian, in their minds, you're going to convert to Judaism, get circumcised, and follow all the rules, all the law. And in Acts 15, and here I'm going to paraphrase, the New Testament church leaders look at those Jewish Christians and say, what? What are you saying? What are you thinking? You're saying you want all these Gentiles to convert to Judaism, to be circumcised, and to try to follow the law, when you already know from your own personal experience you can't follow the law, and that you're not right before God by following the law. No. No. We're not going to do that. And so they say, no. It's not a requirement. You don't have to do that. But it took years and years for that peace between Jewish and Gentile Christians to really take hold. And he goes on to say, Jesus reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross. Now here's another, have you thought about it? Sometimes when you have a problem, the solution tells you how big the problem is. And when you look at the problem we have with God and being reconciled to God, look at what it took to reconcile us. God the Son had to die in our place and suffer in his community with God the Father broken in order that we could be restored. But God has done that. And then Jesus preached priest, uh, peace. That means he announced peace between us and God. And then Paul goes on to say, through Jesus, you and I have access to God. You, you were strangers and aliens. You were totally disconnected from God, but now you're members of his household. You're his adopted children. Through Jesus, you now have access to God. Do you realize how important that is? That we need to be reminded of that actually every day. That through Jesus we have access to God and he's not frowning as he looks on us. He is smiling. Now, those are the verses. I want to extend Paul's idea of Jew and Gentile. Among the peoples of the world today, there are hundreds of groups. Paul was just talking about Jews and Gentiles as two groups. So there are hundreds of groups divided by religion and geography and language and customs. And we call that diversity. And it is diversity. Diversity has come to us. America is called the melting pot because we have people from all those groups here. The D.C. metro area, which we are a part of, is a melting pot because we have people from all those groups here. Some years ago, I lived just uh, close to the Saratoga Elementary School, and I would go to the school when I would uh, vote. When I'd walk into the school, I would see signs for the, for the elementary school children in seven languages. and was told, those are just the primary, most spoken languages. There are another 20 languages we didn't list that are also spoken in homes, just in the community that sends their children to Saratoga Elementary. That's diversity. And in the middle of this diversity, we look for community. And usually, in this diversity, when we're looking for community, we're most often trying to find groups where the people are similar to us. So that we have this 
we can be comfortable. Because you see, no matter who we are, where we're from and what language we speak, we were made for community. We want it. Well, Jesus does something different than just keeping, only picking people that are the same. With his church, Jesus takes many different peoples and he makes one community. People from all over the world. When I grew up, I remember reading the book God's Smuggler about a man named Brother Andrew. He grew up in Europe as a child during World War II. After World War II, when he became an adult, he believed God had called him to provide Bibles to peoples in communist and other closed countries where you couldn't, you couldn't buy Bibles openly. They weren't allowed. And so he would smuggle them in. And if you read the stories, you'll see how God answered his prayer over and over again. He provided money for the Bibles. He enabled the Bibles to be brought into the country, sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds, in their languages, so the people could read the Bible in their language. And sometimes he had the opportunity to sit down with the church leaders. Didn't always have a translator. We didn't have a translator. Often what they would do is both of them would take their Bibles in their own language and open it up, and they would find a verse, and they would point to it. And they'd be able to figure out enough, even though it was a different language, what Bible, you know, what, what book it was, and what chapter and verse. And they would, quote-unquote, talk, using these verses in their own languages, back and forth. And he also talked about this sense of these church leaders were his brothers, spiritually. They were Christians, and so they were part of one family, one community, and he's trying to help them. Because as it says in the scriptures, if one part of the body hurts, it all hurts. And he'd been called by God to do this, to help them. In, in my own conversations with other pastors, I found that many churches look at us as being unusual because we have three congregations trying to learn what it means to work together, English and Spanish and Chinese. And they see us as unusual. Well, this is only just a small picture of what we're going to see because we're told in Revelation when we get there, there will be people in heaven from every tribe and tongue and nation and they're one people. They're one community. Made one by God. But we're not there yet. For now, we have to learn to live in community where we love to serve each other. And that's, what, that's the challenge for us today. That's what, that's what God is doing with us. He's given us that challenge. In John 13, 35, Jesus was speaking to his followers and he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The this in the verse says, As people see you love one another with a godly love, serving love, caring, then they'll know. That's how they'll know that Jesus is real and that you're his followers. Because you see, in our broken world, unity is not natural. In our broken world, loving and serving people does happen some, but loving and serving other people sacrificially, especially when those people are different, that's not natural. And what happens as God works in us is that's where we move towards. Our church motto is side by side. Three words. You actually saw 
a, um, an ad running before the service with it on there. Side by side, three words remind us of three thoughts. That God calls us to live side by side with Jesus every day. That means in community with Jesus, in relationship. Side by side with others being helped. And how does that help happen? In community. Side by side with others helping others. And how does that happen? In it happens best in community. Well, what does godly community look like? That's the other scripture that we have. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What word do you see popping up over and over again? One. One. We're, a bunch, we're all these different people. We're being made into one. God takes us as he finds us. That's a good thing. Because if he had prerequisites we'd probably all fail. He takes us as he finds us, but he doesn't leave us where he found us. God changes us. He grows us. And he grows us using community. In groups. Small groups, not just big groups like this. In one-on-one -on -one conversations. All of that is part of being in community. And do you recognize that one of the things God uses community to do is to help us see our own flaws and our own sin? Because there are some things that we are blind to. But other people, it's like we have a light bulb. Okay, they can see it. And God helps, uses them to help us to grow. And for it to be real life-giving community, we need the gospel at the center of our community. But again, it isn't just about us. God wants to use our community, our church, to draw others to his story both Christians and non-Christians, to draw people into a relationship with Him, into community with Him. And as we live this community and as we, as we keep feeding on God's Word and do what God tells us, like having communion, we are changed. And we see both the greatness of how God loves us and we see how He wants to use us to love others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this truth. We thank you for calling us into relationship with you. We thank you for doing everything needed to reconcile us to you, to make things right. We thank you that our, our hope isn't in anything we can do, but it's in you, in your goodness, in your faithfulness. Lord, as we come and we, as we uh, celebrate communion, the Lord's table, and remember how you loved us, Help us to see how you delight in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.